Thank you for Pastor Chris's sermon, and I pray for those who haven't heard it yet that they'll as well benefit from it. I thank you for the crisp uh, fall air and the freshness of that. And I, Lord, I just pray for for your hand on this time, that your spirit will guide us and that you will uh, teach us all uh, from truths from your word, from theology, Lord, and, and uh, lift us all up and just so that we can know you better through, uh, through uh, good theology, Lord. In your name I pray. Amen. All right, so as a, again, I'm Kevin Bruce. I'm teaching this Covenant Theology class. And as a recap from last week, first I wanted to, first of all, thank everybody who's been praying for me because that is, like, huge. I really appreciate that. Um, I couldn't do this without the prayers of other people here in this congregation praying for me. And I just, if I didn't say that last week, if I don't say it again, I just want to make sure that everybody understands that. And then, second, a little damage control from last week. Um, I said these uh, things would not be online, but that's not going to be true. They will be online, and uh, I kind of got overruled, kind of, uh, uh, well, I was highly encouraged, let's put it that way, to put them online. So they will be online, but they just come under the date and then the name, or Sunday school, so my name isn't attached to it, so I will have plausible deniability in the future if anybody ever, if I ever want to run for office or anything like that. So anyway, so as a little bit of recap from last week, I said the covenant kind of shape the way I view and read scripture. And the covenants are really kind of setting the stage. Um, the stage changes all the time. New characters are on there, new settings and all that, but the stage is always constant. It always stays there. So while they form the framework of, of reading the Bible, you won't necessarily find covenant on every page or every verse of the Bible. So, I mean, Jesus whipped. Arguably the, the, the smallest smallest pat or verse of the Bible, you don't see the word covenant there. But let's think a little bit more. Is covenant really there or not? I mean, why did Jesus weep? I mean, was it because Lazarus died? I'm sure that might be part of it, but I think more is that death has, has taken over. The curse of death is, is taking over, and Christ is just wailing and weeping at this, this curse that shouldn't be part Part of the part of the um, structure of his creation. So, anyway, I think that's. I mean, in that sense, you don't see covenant in every page, but you do see it underlying every every passage and every verse of, of the Bible. So, what is covenant theology? Again, I said last week it's a system of theology that interprets the scriptures with a biblical doctrine of covenants as the organizing principle. It's also called federal theology for some people, um, basically focusing on the federal headships of both Christ and Adam. Adam being the first first uh, representative, then Christ being the second. So if you ever hear federal theology, that's what you're hearing as well. So uh, the goal of this class and covenant theology in general is to help people see how covenants of the Bible unfold the plan and purpose of revelation from Genesis, or a purpose of God from Genesis to Revelation. So in very broad strokes, um, there's kind of like five basic uh, uh, goals here, or uh, things I want to, people to see. Christ is the goal and center of covenant theology. That is, covenants are about Christ. I mean, this always focuses on him and on Christ. Two, that God created Adam and entered into a relationship with him right away at the beginning. Uh, three, as the first man, Adam was representing the entire human race, and therefore if he obeyed, all humans would be blessed, and if he disobeyed, all humans would be cursed. And then for Adam violated the terms of this covenant, therefore Adam and everyone after him uh, are estranged from God. And then five, the covenants after Adam uh, take up the way that God reclaims the fallen people that he has chosen through his son, whom he appointed uh, to bring them in, uh, into the place that he has prepared for, for them to enjoy forever. So, 
So they basically, the general story is that you know God, the story of a sovereign king who gets slighted all the time. You know, tells us what Adam should have done, how the human race was ruined. I mean, basically, if you take out these covenants, if you remove the covenants from uh, all you have left, really is simply some ancient accounts of people without any apparent rhyme or reason as to uh, in a world where things are continually kind of going wrong all the time. So covenants reorient us to that truth that God has a plan for this world and for us who are in it. So. So, uh, why covenant theology? Well, uh, I think uh, most Christians, most evangelical Christians at least, always talk about this relationship with God. Now, the bottom line, covenant is about a relationship. But, you know, what's, what's the nature of this relationship? I mean, if we look at our own relationships in our lives, like husband, wife, parent, child, etc., etc., ha- or, or even a boss and a servant, there's different kinds of uh, emphasis on that relationship. So, I mean, our relationship with uh, uh, a parent or a child or something like that, or a husband or wife would probably be less uh, conditional or more, condi- or yeah, less conditional. But husband or a boss and a, uh, employer might be a little bit more conditional or something like that. So, so covenant is a word that's used in the Bible to describe our relationship with God, and God relates to His people by these interlinked covenants throughout Scripture. So, um, let's continue here. So, and also the second thing that uh, Christianity is also known for is the death and resurrection of Jesus. So, obviously, the gospel message is the center of Christianity. So, I think that's another reason that we should be focusing on covenants because, I mean, just consider this. After three years of ministry, Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. And he said, uh, he said in these words, This is the blood uh, of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Well, notice what he, said, I mean, what he said and what he didn't say. Why not just say, This is my blood which is poured out for the sins of many? But he actually specifies that the covenant is an important aspect and that it kind of defines what, he's, what he came to do to fulfill, these covenant, um, uh, fulfill the covenant for us on our behalf. So, so Jesus connects his death on the cross directly to the fulfillment of Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, which talks about the new covenant being installed. And then also in Luke uh, 1, 72 and 73, Zechariah was looking forward to the birth of Jesus. He praised God who was to show mercy and promise to our fathers and, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. So covenant is a theme that kind of links all these, all these different era or passages of the Bible together and kind of puts the Bible into one coherent whole. Uh, if you want to even kind of press further, think of, think of this. I mean, if you're in ancient Israel and you're kind of walking through uh, the temple or the whatever, the temple or the tabernacle in this case sometimes, you'd be in the outer courts, and then eventually you move on into the holy place. And if you didn't die, you'd move into the holy of holies. And in the holy of holies, what you find is an ark. You don't find an idol. You don't find something that uh, people bow down and worship, but you find an ark. And in that ark is uh, the Ten Commandments, a covenant document of that day. And that's how God chose to relate to his people, not through you know, images and idols, but through a covenant document. So I think uh, docu- or this covenant structure is fairly obvious throughout Scripture, and that it's kind of is a natural way to actually read Scripture to start seeing these... Uh, these uh, um, What's the word I'm looking for? It just kind of works its way up naturally out of as you read the Bible. Uh, J.I. Packer, I wanted to quote him because I thought this was a really interesting quote. He says, The gospel of God is not properly understood until it is viewed within a covenantal frame. And he goes on, The word of God is not properly understood until it is viewed within a covenantal frame. 
And he says the reality of God is not properly understood until it's viewed within the covenantal frame. So basically he's saying God, the gospel, and scripture, none of these are properly understood until you understand it within a covenantal framework. So, so I thought from there, we got, well, we've got to start asking ourselves, what is this covenant structure? What's this relationship that God has with us? But covenant isn't a word that we use in our modern-day language very often anymore. Um, seldom used, actually. Um, so therefore, I thought it might be helpful if we start looking at our own relationships, our own um, relationships in this life and stuff, and ask the question, uh, where do we see covenants, at least some of the elements of the covenants in our own lives today? Um, so just before I start, um, I thought I'd just throw out a question to the congregation here. When you think of covenant, what comes to mind, good or bad? I mean, anybody? <laughs> good, okay. <laughs> okay. Pardon me? Promises. Promises. Very good. Excellent. So kind of a covenant community or a gated community, a covenant in that way, sense? Good and bad. <laughs> Marriage. Marriage, excellent. Good. That's good. That's very good. Uh, I, I, I'm assuming that's very good. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Liz. Yeah, yeah. So it's a continuous thing. It doesn't doesn't just stop at some per- time in the future. It just it continues. Sure. Bart. Yeah, I think in terms of pacts. Pact. Pacts, agreements, or contracts. Sure. And we'll look at some of those terms later in the in the course. Um, just as an aside for future reference, uh, the first covenant we will be talking about next week is the covenant of redemption. It's called the Pactum Salutis in Latin, and it means the pact of salvation, basically. So anyway, just as an aside. So, All right, so we kind of got an idea, a little bit of pa- or, or, uh, covenants in the modern world, but there's also uh, the very basic definition, I guess you could say, is uh, we're, we're in a relationship with legal aspects associated with it. And by that, I don't necessarily mean that it's necessarily, you know, legal in the sense of we always have to go through the government. But it's legal in the sense that we make a vow, maybe if it's just mowing the neighbor's lawn. We made a vow. We entered a relationship with that person to mow their lawn. And therefore, there's legal ramifications with that. And those legal ramifications could be just shame if I don't forget to mow the lawn. Or it could be worse. I don't get paid or et cetera, et cetera. So there's varying degrees of punishment or blessings based upon whether or not uh, you fulfill these covenant vows. Um, Relationships could also include business contracts, so mortgages, uh, car loans. I mean, they all have elements of this relationship, this covenant structure in it. Now, none of these are exactly um, how God's covenants are spelled out in the Bible, but they have elements of that relationship and that legal aspect to it. So employment agreements, that's another uh, covenant agreement that you might make. International treaties, uh, friendships, casual dating, family, husband and wife, uh, Parent-child, 
I mean, you ask your child to do something, you expect them to do it. If they don't, then there's punishments and rewards based upon that. So adoption would be another aspect of that as well. So, um, And then my favorite, teaching Sunday school. So I'm kind of in a... I'm in a covenant pact in a way with this. And not only that, but we'll find out later that covenants are, are well, from God's... We'll be focusing more on God's covenants with man, but God has this kind of this, this sovereignly initiated covenant. And I was kind of overruled with this whole thing, so I mean, with putting it online. So I was kind of sovereignly administered this covenant in my life. So it's kind of, you know, I thought, you know, my weakness becomes a good Sunday school illustration here. So, but... So anyway, again, these relationships between God and humans is like, a, is like these things in some ways, but they're radically different in virtually every other way. So I don't want to say they're exactly the same, but they give you an idea for us who don't you know, know about covenants as well, kind of uh, see them in our, moder- our modern and everyday life a little bit. So, oh yeah, one more thing I want to say. The legality of the relationship does not oppose, is not opposed to intimacy. So what I mean by that is that you know, people get married, obviously, they're in love, you know, you don't want to sit there and think, well, I don't want to get married because that's going to ruin everything or something like that, but actually it strengthens that bond. And I would say that the consequences when that uh, legality is uh, misplaced or set aside, that becomes, that comes detrimental. I mean, just think of uh, abuse within the family or um, unfaithfulness or whatever, that's, that becomes terrible. So, I mean, this legal aspect actually creates and builds intimacy within that relationship. It doesn't just, you know, kind of sound like this foreign concept that, you know, gets thrown to the side or makes it seem less special or something like that. So, kind of looked at covenants in the modern world. What about covenants in the ancient world? Um, um, Covenants in the ancient world are kind of based more on an honor and shame society. So a person's word carried considerable weight. Um, we didn't have ways today like we do with you know forensics and uh, DNA evidence and things of that nature, recordings or whatever. So a person's word had to be kind of established by the external uh, witnesses of other people. So that was uh, that was a highly um, that's a, that's a way you should probably probably start to understand and look at some of these covenants in the ancient world. And the Israelites and their neighbors believed that their respective deities were involved in the lives and were called upon to be these witnesses. So if they did what was supposed or was expected of them, um, supposedly blessings would come out, and if they chose not to, then curses would come out. And that curse is usually in the form of death. And the Bible talks about uh, kind of this thing called a self-maledictory oath or curse. And basically that means that if I don't do what I claim to do within this covenant or this this deal I made with you that made a curse that uh, I said would happen fall upon me. So oftentimes that's, uh, I mean, you see it most explicitly in Abraham's covenant with, uh, with the cutting of the halves through the, in the, uh, the pot and the fire going through the, those halves all the t- or in, the, in Genesis. So, so anyway, you know, oaths were then made to their gods, and if they failed to keep this oath, curses in the form of death were to follow. So, so this was a so this was a solemn act, and also cutting a covenant. I don't know if you've ever heard that phrase. That's kind of the literal um, meaning of when they make covenants in the Bible. It's called cutting a covenant. So, if you ever hear that phrase, that's that's kind of what they're getting that at, where they're actually just, uh, killing animals and and laying them off to the side. So. 
So anyway, I kind of say all that, but I want to make sure that the form and the ceremony of the covenants, they match the relationship. So therefore, different elements were included in different covenants. Obviously, a peace treaty was different than a marriage ceremony. You don't, probably don't cut animals and walk through them in a marriage ceremony. But, you know, in a peace treaty, that was, that was important, you know, because they were kind of saying, you do this, if you don't, then the same curse falls upon you. So, I want to kind of go through, there's many examples of covenants in the Bible. Um, uh, family, Malachi 2.14 says that marriage is a covenant, as you mentioned earlier. Adoption, I couldn't find any verse about covenant or adoption being a covenant, but I think it's fair to say that that's also a covenant. It's, it's a relationship with legal aspects to it, etc. So in the public spheres in the Bible, it says uh, treaties between nations like Joshua and the Gibeonites in Joshua 9, uh, or Israel and Assyria in Hosea 12. Um, laws and agreements between kings and their people is also considered a covenant, as in Jeremiah 34, 8-18. Um, uh, contracts and businesses, like between Abraham and Abimelech, uh, Genesis 21, 22-30, that's also another covenant. Commitments between friends, Jonathan and David, 1 Samuel 2016. Uh, Jonathan... Uh, Basically, he was at that time the rightful heir, but he gives up his throne to uh, give his throne to David, who is God's chosen heir to this covenant, this king or this uh, kingdom. So, there's a covenant that's made between Jonathan and David in this sense. So, the masters and servants with Abner and David, David in Second Samuel three twelve, and Laban and Jacob in uh, Genesis thirty one forty four. So, all these things kind of point to covenant or give you an idea of how these covenant structures are, are set up. So these uh, familiar or familial sorry, and secular uses of covenants in the Bible kind of provide that backdrop to understand the religious covenants that we're going to cover in the future here between God and man. Um, so God accommodates uh, to what the ancient Near East would have understood and pulls from aspects of marriage, adoption, treaties, friendships, kingdom vassal, or lord and servant. So, now, that kind of sounds a little weird. It kind of sounds like, well, you know, God's kind of... Uh, using something that people have already established and he's entering in. But, I mean, remember that God is basically sovereign. He's the creator, so he kind of already had this in mind to start with. And he's using what was commonly understood at the time to enter into this. And not only that, but the original pattern for God's covenant with his people is the perfect communion of the Holy Trinity. You know, I, I want to read a quote here from uh, Louis Burkhoff, who lived from 1873 to 1957. He said that the original pattern for covenant or God's covenant with his people is the perfect communion of the Trinity. He says, Covenants among men had been made long before God established his covenant with Noah and with Abraham. And this prepared men to understand the significance of a covenant in a world divided by sin and helped them to understand the divine revelation when it presented man's relationship to God as a covenant relation. This does not mean, however, the covenant idea originated with man and was then borrowed by God as an appropriate form for the description of the mutual relationship between himself and man. It's quite the opposite is true. The archetype of this covenant is uh, covenant life is found in the Trinitarian being of God, and what is seen among men is but a faint copy of this. So he wants to really emphasize that this, this covenant idea existed in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, long before any of the stuff ever uh, made the scene in, in the ancient world. So, But God used that to kind of bridge the gap and make a covenant then with uh, his people as he, time went on. 
So now we've got to get into the definition of covenant. Um, and this isn't easy because uh, as I read more and more, uh, every theologian has a different definition. So um, the word covenant appears over 300 times in the Bible. It's translated from the Greek word or Hebrew word berit, and I think the Greek word is diatheke or something like that. Um, and like any topic, you're going to have differences of opinion. But, you know, um, not, they're not necessarily disparate uh, definitions, however. I mean, think of, if you were to ask you what a cow is, you go to Wikipedia, you find out it's the subspecies of species and species or family of this and that. But if you ask a four-year-old child, you'll say a big black and white thing that moves and gives milk. I mean, both of them are you know, fairly accurate, but you're going to get differences of opinion depending on who you talk to. So I'll um, actually just run through several different uh, covenant definitions that I found throughout uh, uh, throughout uh, my reading here and kind of give you an idea, a general idea of what different covenants or uh, what different theologians have uh, said the covenants are. And I thought the first one, which would be the best one to go to first, was the Westminster Confession, Chapter 7, uh, Paragraph 1. It says, The distance between God and the creatures is so great that although reasonable creatures do, obe- do owe obedience to, unto him as their creator, yet they could never have any fruition of him as their blessedness and reward, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he has been pleased to express by way of covenant. So that we're emphasizing here that God's sovereign over his creature. There's a creature-creator distinction there. Covenants are between God and they're from top down. They're from God sovereignly administers them and they come down by him and through him. We will always owe loyal obedience to God, to the creator, uh, regardless of whether or not he ever enters into a covenant. But that's, that's what the, that this confession is saying, that we do owe obedience to him. But... This blessedness and reward can never be ours unless God bestows it, that is, voluntarily condescends, as how the confession says, through this relationship that he describes as a covenant. So, um, going on, Meredith Klein, by, in his book, By Oath Consigned, he's got a real succinct definition. He says, in general, a covenant may be defined as a relationship under sanctions. Now, I don't know what you guys think when you hear sanctions, but usually you think of negative things. But sanctions can be either positive or negative, depending on on what the context is. So basically, you're saying blessings and curses. So the covenant is uh, uh, blessings and curses uh, uh, under this relationship. So John T. Rose is one of the books that I read, is Covenants Made Simple. He has kind of two definitions, and I think he realized the first one was not meaty enough, so he made a second one. He says, a covenant is a conditional promise. Okay. <laughs> Doesn't seem like a whole lot there, but uh, then he goes on. He says, a covenant is an agreement between God and human beings where God promises blessings if the conditions are kept and threatens curses if the conditions are broken. So Michael Horton, in Introducing Covenant Theology, he says a covenant is a relationship of oaths and bonds and involves mutual, though not necessarily equal, commitments. So it's not a casual relationship. Um, Oaths are to be kept. Bonds aren't to be broken. Uh, Relationship does not negate the legal, however. Don't think that just because you're in a relationship, there's no legal aspect to this at all. It's a solemn binding on the parties who have committed themselves to each other. Uh, Zachary Keel and Michael Brown, the 
main book that I'm kind of using, uh, Sacred Bond there. He says, A covenant is a solemn agreement of, with oaths and or promises which implies sanctions or certain sanctions or legality. So you're starting to see some of these themes coming up in different definitions, so at least that's good. Um, they go on to say that it has to be at least two parties, although it could be more. It doesn't have to just be two. It can be equals, as in marriage, or it can be unequals, superior, inferior. The nature of the relationship can vary. Um, it doesn't always have to be formal. It can be informal, etc. Uh, it can be intimate or impersonal. And sanctions can be minor or drastic. So, Okay, old Palmer Robertson in Christ of the Covenants. This is another succinct one. He says, a covenant is a bond in blood sovereignly administered. So basically he's emphasizing the life and death issues, the ultimate things. I mean, there's always... These are always life and death issues, these covenants that he's making, whether it's covenant of works or the covenant with Abraham or the covenant with Noah or whatever. There's a life and death uh, issue here. And obviously we see that in the new covenant where Christ took, you know, Christ was nailed to the cross and he died and obviously was resurrected again. So these are all life and death issues. So, And there's no bargaining with the Lord of these covenants. I mean, you don't sit there and get to make a deal with God. He's, he sovereignly administers these things to us. And that, Dennis uh, Johnson, in Walking with Jesus Through the Bible, he kind of expands on Palmer Robertson's uh, definition there. He says, the, Lord, the Lord's covenant with his human servants is a bond of interpersonal commitment involving exclusive loyalty, sovereignly instituted by the Lord, expressed through their mutual obligations, and enforced by life or death consequences. So, uh, again, he's emphasizing for, uh, from his definition, there's four things that he's emphasizing, that they're sovereignly instituted. They're not negotiated contracts between equals, but bonds between unequals, lord and servant, creator, creature, sovereign, subordinate. They're imposed by God. He exercises his right to create this covenantal terms. And it begins with what God has done, either creation or exodus or the cross or whatever, and it forms God's action. And from this, God's actions flow, flows the forms of our response as servants. So if we want to kind of use that as a template, you kind of look at Exodus 20 here. Exodus 20, as you guys know, is, is the place where God gives his Ten Commandments to his people. And you see in that, uh, in that passage that there's a, there's a prologue given right at the beginning, 20, uh, verse 2. It says, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So there he's basically kind of saying this is the historical, uh, this is the historical situation. This is what I've done for you, and now I'm instituting this covenant with you. So he gives them Ten Commandments. And these Ten Commandments, you know, they're non-negotiable. It's not like, you know, you kind of sit there and say, well, you know, kind of like three, you know, who doesn't want a day off type thing. But yeah, I don't know about you know five and six or seven or something like that. But you know the deal is these these aren't negotiable uh, deals. I mean, you do what he says or you don't do what he says, but you don't get to negotiate. So I want to make it clear that it's not quite a contract. Contract kind of implies that you can negotiate something. These aren't contracts. These are what we would call covenants. They're non-negotiable situations. So. So, but uh, Israel, uh, in in their uh, commend them, they do rightly respond to these co- commandments in uh, Exodus 24:3. This is all the words that God spoke, and we will do, which was the right response from them. They obviously didn't fulfill that, but that is the right response. So, uh, also he's emphasizing a committed relationship, which means exclusive loyalty. So it's between the Lord and his people. It forms a bond. It's intimate. It's affectionate. So therefore, he relates it to marriage in that way. The Lord is jealous for his people to love and trust him alone. 
not just wandering after other gods, but God pledges his allegiance and expects them to love and obey him alone in return, in return as Lord and as their protector. So it's, and it's legal and structured. Some biblical covenants are formal, have more formal features. They resemble international treaties, and this is kind of one of them. So again, from that example from Exodus 20, you see that Israel is obligated to respond in like commitment. You know, absolute exclusive loyalty is expected from them. And that's expressed really in the first commandment. I mean, uh, you shall have no other gods before me. I mean, that's kind of a summary statement of all the, all the rest of these commandments fit under, that you owe me exclusive and absolute loyalty. No one else, no other gods, nothing, but me alone. So uh, then there's also mutual obligations, and these are more than just emotional attachments, but they're costly commitments lived out in action. That's why the rest of the commandments kind of follow no idols, uh, don't take my name in vain, honor the Sabbath, etc., etc. And then there's also sometimes words or symbolic uh, actions involved with these covenants. So symbolism is kind of a, uh, a visible word in this sense. And we have lots of those examples in Scripture from baptism, communion, uh, circumcision, the rainbow for Noah's covenant. Um, some people believe that the tree of life was a symbol, a sacrament for uh, the covenant with Adam. Um, so, I mean, we have all these different symbols and sacraments uh, associated with these, uh, with these covenants. Um, oh, I think this is also important that I should bring out. Uh, God freely chooses to obligate himself. He's not under any con- obligation to uh, come in and enter any kind of relationship with us, but he freely chooses to do that. However... Uh, the reverse side, we're not freely, we don't freely choose to enter into any kind of relationship with God. God says, this is what it is. You either do it or you don't, but there's no, there's no bargaining here with God. I mean, he's, this is what's laid out, and this is what you have to do. So again, example from Exodus 20 is God, God gives promises, and he, he lays out some of these promises in verse, or the second commandment and the fifth commandment. He, he expands on them later on in Exodus and through Deuteronomy. But from the second commandment, you see, uh, uh, which is about idols, that if you uh, choose to uh, fall into idolatry, God's curses will be on you to the third and fourth generation. But if you choose to be steadfast in your love towards him, God's love will be poured out to you for thousands of, gen- well, probably generations is what they're probably referring to there. So, I mean, he's kind of giving these promises as he goes along. And also in verse, uh, in the fifth commandment, there's kind of like two promises given, that if you obey your parents, um, you'll live long in this land that I'm giving to you. So you give a land and you'll live long. So, I mean, you kind of see a little bit of uh, some of these promises and obligations that God is giving to him. Uh, and uh, what he's promised to do for his people. But obviously, the other side, the flip side of the coin, is that the people are then also obligated to obey these commands. You know, no idolatry, uh, don't take it my name lightly, honor the Sabbath, honor your parents, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, and don't covet. All right, and then consequences result depending on the party's performance to fulfill obligations. So on God's side, there's no question. God can't lie. It's impossible for him to lie, Hebrews 6.18. So he will fulfill his side of the obligation. Human side, the Bible's a little bit more realistic. Uh, uh, we don't quite live up to our, our side of the, our, of, the, of the covenant obligations here all the time. This is only... Only one servant actually kept that covenant flawlessly, and that was, that was Christ, who's not only acts as God, obviously, and fulfills one side of the covenant, but he also comes in as servant and fills the other side of the covenant for us. So, 
So his loving, obedient loyalty he fulfills as a servant and shares that on our behalf. So our reward is eternal life. But he also endured on our behalf the death that our own disloyal rebellion deserves. So he's setting us free from the cursed consequences. So he's both covenant keeper and he's also the curse bearer. So... And then from Exodus 20 again, I already kind of talked a little bit about the obedience of blessings, but if there's disobedience, well, to the third and fourth generations in, in, in that uh, second commandment, and the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. That's another consequence. Later in Deuteronomy 28, 1 through 14, all these curses are f- more fully spelled out as you, as you kind of go along. So, so I thought I'd also kind of bring it down to a, maybe a more practical level and give you an example from marriage. I mean, Malachi two fourteen through sixteen says when God when God is at, or when asked why God no longer accepts their offerings, the following is given: because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did He not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourself in, their, in your spirit, and let none of you, your, you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife, but divorces her, says to the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garments with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and do not be faithless. So we see that God considers marriage a uh, pretty high, high priority. He's considered a covenant in his, in his, uh, in his economy here. So in modern ceremonies, we see these, uh, this covenant being worked out as well. So a uh, statement of ten is made. Will you have this man to be your lawfully wedded wife? You know, uh, Vows are made. I promise before God uh, and these witnesses to love, to cherish, have, hold, sickness, health, till death do us part. So vows are made. So again, similar to what covenants God makes with uh, his people. Signs and seals are also administered. We give a wedding ring. That's a sign of your, your marriage. I mean, it doesn't make you married, but it's a sign of that marriage. And then they're bound together as one flesh. So as God enters into this relationship, binds himself to us, we're bound together as one flesh. And things will go well or not in the marriage, depending on whether they're faithfulness to these, uh, faithfulness to one another and their vows to one another. Okay, the marriage analogy, however, breaks down because everything, we're sinners. So before sin, Adam had the ability to do what God asked because he was created in perfect knowledge, righteousness, righteousness and holiness, Ephesians 4.24. But he was, uh, and he was able to give his word and keep it. But after sin, he could have sworn all he wanted, upside down, one side or the other, whatever, and that he's going to do whatever God wanted him to do, but he lacked the ability, therefore, at this point in time, to keep those promises anymore. However, and this is where we're going to cover in the following weeks or upcoming weeks, God makes another covenant with him anyway, to deliver him and his elect offspring. And that covenant is what we oftentimes call the covenant of grace. So now relating back to the marriage example, God comes to his bride, his people, the church, and declares his intent to have them as his own. Then God makes a solemn vow to commit himself to his people for their eternal good. And he gives them signs and pledges and seals of that relationship. In Genesis 17.10, there's circumcision. Exodus 12.11 is Passover. Matthew 26-28 is Holy Communion. And Matthew 28.19 is Baptism. So before the fall, Adam had the ability to be faithful to God. But after the fall, only God could accomplish every word and promise that he set out. So the relationship was restored, 
but under different conditions. Conditions only God could keep because Adam no longer could. Therefore, a relationship with God takes, uh, takes one of two possible forms. One of mutual fidelity between both parties, which is really no longer possible, or grace bestowed on the offending party, which would be us. So... So, um, I don't know if there's any questions. I've got some more stuff to cover here, but I thought, you know, I'm, trying, I'm struggling really hard to kind of figure out how to make this more interactive. So I thought I'd just stop and pause every now and then and say if there's any questions, comments, or concerns here that anybody wants to, uh, wants to uh, bring up. Uh, here's your opportunity. If not, I'll continue on with a little bit of this. And I hate questions anyway, so this is awesome. So, <laughs> but, uh, and I've only got like uh, five minutes left, I see here on my clock, so uh, I have to make this quick. There's synonyms for covenants in the Bible, and those synonyms have already been mentioned somewhat. One is oath. Oftentimes you see the word oath being used in place of uh, covenant. Exodus 6, 8, I will bring you into the land I swore to give you, swore being the oath, to give Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for possession. I am the Lord. Genesis 26, 3, says, he says to Isaac, uh, to Isaac God said, Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to give Abraham your father. Promise is also, in other words, used, I won't get into the verses here, but Galatians 3, when he's talking about the promise, or the covenant promise, he just uses promise for the Abrahamic promise oftentimes. Now, Romans 4.13, he also uses the same words, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring. So promise is oftentimes used as a word, another sentiment for the word covenant. Sometimes obligations are also used for synonyms. Synonyms, <laughs> not synonyms. <laughs> um, so emphasizing obligations from one party to another. So laws, commandments, testimony, judgment, statutes. Paul, Paul often refers to the Sinai covenant simply as the law. So that's another synonym, synonym that you could use for covenants. Signs. Um, Signs or symbols are often used to represent the whole covenant. Uh, Jesus said in Luke 2, 22, 20, this cup is the new covenant. Again, the cup is not the new covenant, but it represents that covenant that God has established with us. And then the big one that I really like is the covenant formula. I will be your God, and you will be my people. So I will be dot, 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 and you will be dot, dot, dot to me. So filling those dot, dot, dots with father, son, husband, wife, lord, servant, whatever. You see these variations throughout all the scripture. You know, Oftentimes they're in just halves. I will be God to you, or you will be this to me. So you see that oftentimes. And it's found throughout the Old Testament and New Testament. So Exodus 6, 7. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And Leviticus 26, 12. And I will walk among you, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. Uh, Jeremiah 7, 23. Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. Romans 9, 25-26, who is quoting Hosea at this point. Those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And all the way to Revelation 21, 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. So you see different ways that this covenant idea is expressed out throughout all of Scripture. Even if it's not explicitly stated as a covenant, sometimes that covenant motif is, is there right in the very pages all the time. So Now, I'm not going to get into this big, but I wanted to uh, say a little bit about typology. Um, in the Bible, uh, the reason I don't want to get into it is because it's not really the purpose of the class, but I thought it might help a little bit to 
to help you see how these different covenants are really types. They're shadows relating to Christ in the future. You know, a, a type is really, I mean, that's what really all it is. It's a, a people, a thing, event, an institution, something that God has ordained in the past. It's a real event. God ordained, God uh, providentially ordained to happen, but they foreshadow something that's going to take place in the future. Usually it relates to Christ. And these foreshadowings can be uh, either by differences or by similarities. So, I mean, obviously Adam is called a type in Romans 5. 14, I believe. Um, he's called a type of, uh, of Christ who's coming later. Um, but Adam obviously isn't perfect in exact representation of Christ and what he did. So there's similarities and there's differences between those types. And you see those different contra- uh, contrasts. And we'll see that as we go through these different covenants throughout the next several weeks. The ones between Adam and Noah and Moses and Aaron and David all foreshadow this greater prophet, priest, and king in the future. So... Um, I am running out of time. It's about 10.41, so I'm going to go through this really quick. Skip a few slides. So, I guess I'm going to kind of wrap this up. This is just an introduction. I apologize that this is kind of like being fed with a fire hose today. I had a lot of information I wanted to get out, but I didn't really know how to make it more interactive, and I'm kind of glad I did because now it's 10.42. So... (laughs) uh, Covenant is, so the bottom line, covenant is our relationship with God and his with us. So the following are all played out on the stage of covenants. The curse that we deserve, how Christ saves us, how we please God, our prayer life, our blessed hope, and it goes on. So the gospel message kind of falters without this covenantal framework, and there's really no assurance without it. And if there's no covenants, it'd just be like a mishmash of events taking place throughout. I mean, this Bible would just become a mishmash of events with no really any rhyme or reason why they're happening, I think. So I want to quote Francis Turretin, uh, 1623 to 1687. He's a reformed scholastic. He says, Since covenant is the greatest importance in theology, being as it were the center and bond of all religion, consisting in the consummation of God with man, and embracing in his compass all the benefits of God towards man and his duties towards God, our highest interest lies in rightly knowing and observing it. Hence the discussion of it demands peculiar accuracy, and the truth may be confirmed against the errors by which Satan has endeavored in almost every age to obscure and corrupt the saving doctrine. So basically the study of covenants and scriptures to understand our great and majestic God we serve and behold his grace and mercy. And to understand that covenant theology is not just some abstract system imposed on scripture, but it's really the very structure of scripture and the framework that arises out of that as the drama of redemptive history unfolds from Genesis to Revelation. So in a nutshell, if I had to boil it all down, I think covenants are really about God's gospel and God's uh, gospel to to us and to uh, what he's done for us throughout all of history. So that is really all I had. It's uh, 10.43, and that one says 10... Oh, it took me 41 minutes. Okay, cool. So, uh, again, any questions, uh, comments, concerns? And that's where you get it from. Uh, the, I do not. Uh, Randy, maybe you might? You know the whole self maledictic cutting the ham and hats. Okay. You can't hear that. When you cut. 
I think it's... Yeah, he's wondering, the cutting comes from when when the covenant was made with Abraham, right? He cut, the animals were cut in half yes. and set aside, and that cutting usually comes from that context of the ritual involved in making the covenant. Yeah, so it is literally a cut. That's actually the term that's used in Hebrew. Right, and, and a lot of times that will be translated and made a covenant, but it's literally cut. There you go. Thank you, Randy. It's Kevin, actually, but go ahead. Exactly. Exactly. And we'll cover that in the future because we're going to kind of cover all these different covenants more in depth as we go along, and that will obviously be part of the Abrahamic covenant as we cover that. So, anyway, it's 10:46, so I'm a bit over. So I'm going to dismiss you all now, and I will say a quick word of prayer, and you guys can take off. So, Lord, again, thank you for this morning. I thank you for helping me through this whole thing. Um, Again, it's, you're a great God, and I thank you for using my weakness. I just pray that you will bless the people who hear this and that take something away from all this and that you will start impressing upon their hearts, Lord, some of the importance of this covenant in, your, in, in, in the Bible. Lord, I pray for the following service that people who haven't uh, been able to attend it, they'll hear an awesome message from uh, from Chris, hear your word, hear your word through Pastor, and I just thank you for his uh, words this morning. In your name I pray. Amen.